know this is like totally unrelated, but do you ever think about noise much? No? I don't mean get annoyed by it, but just think about it. And you might say, for Christ's sake, Diana, what could possibly be there to ponder on the subject of noise? Unless I'm the one doing it while I'm having fun, it's annoying and I want it to stop. Well, yes, but also, what is noise actually? And who is allowed to produce it and why? After all, it's uh, not like the louder the noise, the harsher the penalty. You might call the police on that insufferable neighbor still partying hard at 2 in the morning, but you know most of your complaints about the year-long construction site next to your apartment block will likely be ignored even though compacting machines will rattle you more than the sickest of beats. So let's see what's up with all the ruckus, shall we? For this episode, I thought I'd try something a bit different. I'll be my own guest today and I hope you'll join me for a gentle stroll, at the end of which I will have recorded some of my impressions on a particular topic. Hopefully this will be a recurring format in the future, we'll see. Uh, but let's begin. One beautiful summer evening in 1907, Alfred Freiherr von Berger carried out an experiment. He went into the garden of his house in the 13th district of Vienna, an area that was regarded as quiet, and there he began to analyze the sounds of the city. Here's what he heard. First, we have the big city noises, mechanical, often sharp and brusque. Two automobiles, buzzing and hooting. The whistles of at least three factories from various distances. The rattling of a vehicle the wailing roar of an electric streetcar engine, a train off the city railroad, its wheels rattling and brakes screeching, the whistling and puffing of the switchers on the western railroad, the metallic bang of the bumpers, the bells and the muffled rolling of the steam streetcar. Then there are the sounds of the people going about their business or leisure. Three bands, one very close, one further away, one very far away bells chiming, the vile shouting of a driver urging on the horses of his cart, a scythe being sharpened, trumpet signals from barracks, carpets and furniture being beaten, a passerby whistling, the neighbor's garden being watered by a hissing jet of water, a barrel organ, two pianos, a lady singing. Finally, the urban-adapted flora and fauna makes its way into the soundscape. Two barking dogs, a whimpering dog, the twittering of many sparrows, the cry of a peacock, the roaring of the wild animals in the menagerie of Schönbrunn far away, the wind rustling through the trees, a parrot. Von Berger was part of a growing group of people who pleaded for a right to silence. He was, however, aware that there had never been such a thing as absolute silence and that what counted as acceptable in a phonic environment was changing rapidly in the industrial age. What the city dweller calls silence, he pointed out, is a mixture of all sorts of sounds he has become accustomed to. 
He does not hear them anymore and therefore to him they represent silence. And indeed, I did my own little experiment one afternoon, uh, curious to see just how unperceptive I would be to some of the sounds hidden in what I deemed the most silent spots in my neighborhood. I took a stroll in a patch of marshland just behind some of the more recently developed apartment blocks in the area. As you can hear, it was a windy day, but it wasn't until I played back the recording that I noticed the harshness of that sound, not to mention the crazy rustling of my puffed jacket. The crunching of the stones beneath my feet felt downright therapeutic, and I, though I registered the croaking of birds and a few distant barks, it felt like these sounds were enriching rather than breaking the silence. Uh, perhaps because, uh, paradoxically, it seemed like they belonged to that place more than the <laughs> vibration of my phone which went off at some point. I say paradoxically because in a game of free association on cities, I'd guess cell phones would crop up sooner and more often than dogs and birds. Unfortunately, I guess. Uh, and then there are the sounds of the city's infrastructure. That's the sound of an elevated manhole, just as I was about to climb out onto the parking lot above. But let's get back to the past. By the turn of the 20th century, those living in the cities began to notice the high levels of background noise in their environments, and started discussing its impact on their overall health and well-being. It's not just the types of sounds being produced that changed dramatically following the Industrial Age, but also the way that material structures were arranged. Between the 1850s and 1870s, cities were densely packed with residential buildings, factories and large-scale municipal projects. These buildings formed street canyons, which became deeper and deeper the closer one moved toward the city center. Sound reflected and rebounded from their stone walls. Living and working quarters, shopping, services, cultural and leisure facilities gradually became separated from one another, and people were required to become increasingly mobile. Public transit systems grew rapidly, and so did the surfaces dedicated to traffic. In 1900, a city like Vienna, for instance, was awash with the sound of hired carriages, horse-drawn and steam-powered and eventually electrified streetcars, as well as the city railroad. Increasingly, human and animal sounds were blotted out by the mechanic din of motorized vehicles. But the rising sound level of the 19th century cities was not just a matter of subjective perceptions or simply an expansion of the range of sounds on offer, so to speak. The type and intensity of the signals used to ward off dangers also points to the need to penetrate a much denser web of noises. For instance, ambulances, firefighters and the police had replaced trumpet signals and bells with wailing sirens. Urban social activities advanced further and further into the night, as street lighting illuminated a growing number of streets. Streetcars ran until 10 p.m. The late hours of the evening and early hours of the morning were used for maintenance and repair work. 
it was high time that someone would confront this cacophony and set it straight. Given their growing power and influence by the early 19th century, it was especially the middle classes that would shape the ways in which people experienced public space, dealing with noise circled around ideas of social control, moral discipline, and power. (laughs) So what exactly does that mean? Well, as I alluded to in the introduction, not all noises are created equal. We certainly don't judge noises just based on their intensity or the time of the day they intrude upon us. We accept or tolerate certain noises if we or our community can find some social utility in the final result, for instance. Things like repairing a road or the landscaping of a nearby park. We might get annoyed at someone busking in our neighborhood, but we find it perfectly acceptable that someone display their musical talents in a public square, the subway, during festivals or fairs, or when we're on vacation. I'm not saying everyone likes it, but expressing displeasure or resorting to things like calling the police or shouting at the busker is less likely in these other scenarios. So the point about this middle-class influence over the regulation of noise is simple, really. You cannot eliminate noises starting with the most intense or harmful, provided you can measure them accurately, because it's very difficult to compel groups that are even more influential than your own to disrupt or alter their, let's say, money-making activities. And if you cannot eliminate all noises, you find the easiest targets. That means that it's easier to find street vendors and peddlers who advertise their wares or services by shouting rather than pushing factories out of city centers. Of course, we did eventually separate people's living quarters from industrial production, even before most of it got outsourced to China or Vietnam, but I digress. The point about which sources of noise are the first to be silenced remains. To illustrate this, let me introduce you to Julia Barnett and Isaac Rice as they first tried to escape noisy Broadway in 1903. Julia had a medical degree. Isaac, a venture capitalist, invested in things that, somewhat ironically, made quite a bit of noise like air compressors or submarines. A couple of years earlier, the concept of New Yorkitis had entered the public consciousness as a contagion that affected a large percentage of the inhabitants of Manhattan. The illness arose from an unhealthy addiction to noisy environs. The New York Times wrote in 1905, If, as a distinguished nerve specialist ventured, uproar is the smoke of noise, the 20th century metropolis may be summarized as a bonfire of sound that is rapidly spreading beyond control of any ordinary extinguisher. Julia Barnett and her Society for the Suppression of Unnecessary Noise waged a national campaign for a local issue and won. They used their rather impressive list of allies, which included celebrities of the day such as Mark Twain, as well as the city's most vulnerable, to give a noble sheen to their quest to eliminate unacceptable noises. Barnett herself declared, 
I have scores of letters from physicians, most of whom are connected in one way or another with the large hospitals of the city, not only commending the movement, but promising their support. They are fully aware that the city's sick poor are often in danger of losing their lives on account of the awful noises surrounding the institutions. I have been informed that in some instances, patients have been driven insane by these unnecessary noises. She argued that the city's poor suffered greatly on account of tugboat noises. In 1907, Congress signed a law quieting the whistles of ships in federal waters. She also posted signs around hospitals, churches and schools. School children who pledged to be silent near hospitals received black and white buttons saying humanity. Blinking traffic lights replaced whistleblowing police officers. Horses and subway cars were outfitted with rubber soles. Across cities on the old continent, the practice of cracking whips, ringing bells, and sounding horns was restricted or prohibited. Metal objects had to be wrapped in straw or sheets and isolated from each other. Carts without springs were only allowed to go at walking speed. So far so good, right? These seem like pretty reasonable measures to reduce noise pollution in the city. And they are, but here's the rub. Once the campaign was underway and successful, its scope kept expanding. Some of the most zealous of anti-noise activists across the pond in Austria even compiled listicles of blue and blacklisted establishments based on their noisiness. Significantly, though, these groups of activists failed to attract workers, despite the fact that on the shop floor, people were exposed to an enormous level of noise pollution. It's also true that the same level of exposure to these noisy environments also meant that workers were more tolerant of the varied noises that disturbed the more delicate ears of the middle classes, whose lists of annoyances seemed to grow and grow. Eduard Hanslick, the music critic of the Neue Freie Presse, complained about the daily pains we suffer from the hands of amateurish neighbors tinkling or pupils exercising. I honestly believe that this musical torture is the most wearing of all discordant sounds and noises which torment the ears and dull the senses of city people every day. Gramophones, noisy teenagers, orchestra music from the cinema, shutters opening and closing were also put on the naughty list. Oddly enough, very few complaints were registered regarding the noise made by factories or church services. It was primarily the lower classes that irritated the urbane and sophisticates of the day. Suddenly, reducing the noise of the city meant shutting up scores of street musicians, knife grinders, yelling junkmen, hucksters, peddlers, and even lower middle class ladies entertaining themselves on their subpar pianos. When the police threatened to ban megaphones on Coney Island in 1907, the Barkers Union staged a protest. How are you going to get a crowd to come in and see the boy with a tomato head and the rest of the wonders if you don't talk to them? Asked the oldest barker, Pop Hooligan. Other dramas unfolded as advertising by way of shouting became a no-no. How shall the scissor grinder tell the cliff dweller that he is below and willing to make knives and scissors as sharp as razors? 
The whole thing is a move to add power to the janitor, said Isaac Leshetsky at his home. They will say that all the tenants who want butcher knives or scissors ground must tell the janitors in advance, and then we may go in and ask the janitor about it. Won't the janitor come in on the graft? We will have to make ourselves solid with the janitor, or we won't get anything. I see it all. It's a plot of theirs. And think of the time lost asking each one of them. Is this a free country, I ask it? It is not. People were not unwilling to propose solutions, nevertheless. For instance, Raffaele Vecchio of McDougall Street, who is a junkman, suggested that in time there might be introduced a system of signs like the old rag signals to be exhibited in front of the houses, silently making known the fact that old clothes or junk are for sale therein, or that umbrellas, washtubs, clotheslines or knives are to be attended to in the house of the signal. What would a man's home look like with all the signals flying? asked Raffaele Vecchio. For a home may happen to need us all in one day. Uh, does it mean that I think it would be great to have shouty men and women selling their wares in the street? <laughs> no, I... I, in fact, can still remember as a kid being startled within an inch of my life by the gas tank refillers, uh, you know, the ones uh, used to power stoves. And these guys would announce their presence in the neighborhood by vigorously banging a metal rod on a tank. But here's the thing. I doubt if given a choice. These people back in the day thought that shouting was the best bit of their job. It was just what they did because it worked and it's not like they had any space to advertise in the local newspaper, for instance. And it's something that we still don't understand when differing interests clash today. People who oppose things that seem to be self-evidently good for the community, like reducing noise or disincentivizing people to drive everywhere or so on, they don't do it because they wouldn't like less noisy, less polluted or congested cities. Maybe some are indeed incorrigible assholes, but many just don't want to see their way of earning a living disrupted without there being an equally viable alternative in sight. Now, the Society for the Suppression of Unnecessary Noise would have one lasting accomplishment, quiet zones. These innocuously sounding places have nevertheless been perfect tools in the hands of the more whip-cracking kind of local authorities. Let's spin around to more recent times to see what I mean. Under the mayorship of Michael Bloomberg, Several popular gathering spots for street performers, among them Bethesda Fountain in Central Park, were declared quiet zones. Summonses for singing and playing instruments were emitted by the truckload, drawing public outcry that eventually led to the fines being dismissed. In 2006, pressured by local businesses, Chicago City Council voted to ban public performers from four of the most congested blocks on the Magnificent Mile, Eleven years later, the same city council was looking to extend the ban further on sections of Michigan Avenue and State Street. According to officials, the measures were prompted by complaints coming from office workers in those areas, annoyed at having to listen to music throughout their workday. Which no doubt gets to you after the novelty wears off, but as one of the performers remarked, Michigan and State is our bread and butter. That's where the bulk of the tourists are. We rely mostly on tourists. 
Just as in the case of the peddlers and various servicemen or women at the turn of the 20th century, there is a fundamental imbalance of power between groups that authorities are inclined to listen to, businesses and office workers who, albeit have a case for a less noisy environment, come up against various street performers or vendors who are fighting to hang on to a vital source of their livelihoods without being offered alternatives. Then there are the weird flexes, such as blaring classical music through speakers outside certain shops used by teenagers as gathering spots. Besides insufferable grumpiness, these measures, which, by the way, are not exactly soundless, also reek of classism, as they are meant to target any of the uncouth members of society that can harm business. Yet somehow it gets even more petty. The Mosquito, an ultrasonic noise device that emits an extremely annoying tone that, due to the degradation of human hearing, is only audible to people under 25, is among the most popular anti-loitering devices in the United States. The Mosquito worked perfectly last night. I got it hooked up just in time for the kids to show up and make a lot of noise. After I turned it on, they began complaining and left shortly thereafter. This thing is amazing, said one happy purchaser. So, I think I will wrap it up for today. I might continue this little incursion into the topic in a future episode, or my curiosity might lead me down a totally different path. I hope you've enjoyed this new format, and if you did, tell someone about this podcast, share a link on any social media you might be active on, and stay safe and remain curious. Bye!